The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Infrastructure Eve. We check in with Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, Democrat representing Illinois, 9th Congressional District, on the eve of President Joe Biden's infrastructure unveil. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for uh, Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the All-Star Policy Panel, with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We begin tonight with a big story. President Joe Biden today uh, saying essentially that it's time for there to be infrastructure. And in doing so, he signed the Paycheck Protection Program Extension Act into law. Here's the president just before the bill signing. Without somebody signing this bill today, there are hundreds of thousands of people who could lose their jobs and small family businesses that might close forever. And as you know, small business is the backbone of our economy, representing almost 50 percent of all the employees in America. Meanwhile, Senate Senator Mitch McConnell, rather, uh, well, he had a lot to say about the government spending on the eve of President Biden's unveil of what some are saying could be three trillion dollars worth of infrastructure in a proposal that he's set to unveil tomorrow in Pittsburgh. Uh, Visiting the McKesson Vaccine Distribution Center in Bullock County, Kentucky, Here's Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell talking or criticizing the American Rescue Plan. Take a listen to the sound on this. I think it was a spending spree the country did not need. And I would remind you that even after what we did last year, our national debt became the size of our economy, which hasn't happened since World War II. And now we've added two trillion dollars more to it. I want to welcome back to the program Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat representing Illinois' 9th Congressional District. This district is anchored in Chicago's north side, including much of the area bordering Lake Michigan. Congresswoman, great to have you on such an important day. You just heard it from McConnell. He says it's too much money. We can't afford infrastructure. Well, you know, we didn't hear that from Mitch McConnell when they passed with through reconciliation, meaning that they only needed 50 votes as well to um, add $2 trillion to the debt with a tax cut that went to the wealthiest Americans. Um, And that was just fine. About two-thirds of it went to the top 1% of Americans. Now that we're actually helping our economy, helping ordinary people, putting people back to work, helping our small businesses in particular, now, oh, they're so worried about all this debt that is coming up. 
And I'm telling you, most people, about 75-plus percent of the Americans are really loving this. Um, you know, the Rescue Act, the American Rescue Plan that, uh, that Joe Biden said, has really pulled so many people out of the depths of despair and, uh, and deprivation. And now we're moving on to not just uh, now to recovery. And, and so we're going to have a bill that, uh, that does infrastructure that is desperately needed as well in our country. Okay, Congresswoman, but, how, but truthfully, I mean, wh- or do you expect that President Biden's going to outline how he plans to pay for that? Because, I mean, even I talk to Democrats who want to know uh, how, how folks are going to pay for it, especially in the middle class. They're worried about their taxes going up. Well, I mean, we also could reduce, uh, we, we, we could get some more taxes. That would be my plan from the, uh, from the wealthiest Americans. There are a number of places that we actually could we could also reduce some of the um, military uh, budget, which I think is is usually bloated. I don't know that he's going to announce it, um, a pay for, but he's certainly going to talk about what this is going to do for the economy, putting people to work, not at uh, you know just uh, any old work, but finally rebuilding the uh, infrastructure that is in in such great need. You know, we're talking about um, bridges and and roads and mass transit um, investment, even in things like safe uh, drinking water for for all Americans, rebuilding some of the hospitals and even adding some of the some hospitals and community health centers. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot that has um, needed to be done that is going to be done, and a lot of it is also going to be good jobs and green jobs that are going to make our not only our economy but our environment better. Representative Sikowski, uh, I was wondering if I could follow up on uh, where Kevin was headed on sort of revenue raisers on this. And some Democrats are in the House, some of your colleagues, are actually starting to take positions that, that are saying, if you don't create relief with the SALT repeal, we're not going to support this. So in other words, they're actually getting to the point where they're lobbying for certain tax provisions to be part of this package. And so are, are you at that stage yet where you've looked at this and said, look, we've got to have re- repeal of this SALT provision, you know, uh, or, or I'm not going to support the, the, the legislation? Well, I'm not there. I mean, I, we're in a state where those uh, state and local taxes are quite, uh, are quite high. I'm sure there are certainly people who would be happy uh, about that, but you know, another another tax break, I don't think is really on the uh, on the table right now. We'll see. This is a negotiation. Um, you know, we have negotiated um, all of these bills. Now there is a chance at the end of the day that we do it, um, requiring only um, 50 votes. That is by reconciliation in the in the Senate. Um, I, I'm anxious to see the plan, but the better it would be if we had just bipartisan support. And I want to tell you that maybe some of these Republicans are complaining, but they will show up at the ribbon cutting of these projects that are going to enhance their communities and, and their and the jobs in their in their neighborhoods. Well, let me follow up on this. Just, uh, I think I think Rick makes a good point, and, and I hear you on that in terms of everyone wants infrastructure, but I, I think that there is a real, uh, uh, how do I say this, a lot of meaning in where President Biden is choosing to unveil this. I mean, he's going to be talking about green jobs 
in a city synonymous with the steel industry of yesterday. I mean, look, you don't have to be from Pennsylvania like me to know what Pittsburgh means. It means grit. It means hard work. It means working class. All right. And back in 2015, Congresswoman, you remember this. Then uh, Vice President Joe Biden, he marched and he ran through a Labor Day parade with the union workers when he was toying with the idea of challenging the ultimate nominee of that cycle, Hillary Clinton. We all know how that election turned out. And I guess my question is, how crucial is it going to be for the Democratic Party to unite some of those working class voters that abandoned the Clinton coalition and went for Trump that this president, President Biden, was able to win back if he wants to get infrastructure across the finish line? Well, I want to tell you that we also passed in the House of Representatives the PRO Act. That stands for Protect Our Right to Organize Act. And in the Rescue Act, there was also some, some help for, uh, for pension funds. 100,000 workers in, in my state, in Illinois, actually um, retirees, um, are going to have their pensions um, because of what he did. And I think we're going to see a lot of support from working people because he is a pro-union man. Um, you know, he, I- he has a long history of that. Well, I don't mean to cut you off, but I really want to talk about something here because you know this, Congresswoman, and, and I know you're going to give it to me straight here, which is when, when we talk about executive orders for the energy sector, there are some people who that makes incredibly uneasy, refinery workers in particular, coal country in particular. He has an opportunity tomorrow to go and talk about new renewable jobs, but he has an opportunity to do it and say this is going to mean jobs for, for some of those industries that quite honestly are having to make some very difficult long-term decisions. What does he need to say? He needs to say that what we're going to produce are millions of good-paying jobs to make sure that our families have what they need, that um, these, uh, th- these jobs are going to um, make our, our districts, our communities much stronger. These are things that uh, you need, that we need, and we can do this together. I, I you know, I have seen Joe Biden. It, it's, he may turn out to be the most progressive president that we have seen perhaps since uh, since Roosevelt in sticking up for ordinary people. And and Joe is a credible deliverer of that message. Um, I, I think that people, you know, he, he's taken all these things, I assure you, into consideration. He knows his audience. He knows who's he, who he's talking to. And I think that it's going to go over big. Um, I think he's going to say the, the the right things about good jobs to these working families. Congresswoman, I want to pick up on the bipartisan nature of future legislation that you mentioned earlier. I mean, we saw today the president, um, you know, signed into um, uh, law an extension of the Paycheck Protection Program. Very bipartisan piece of legislation, mm-hmm. you know, in essence trying to get uh, support to small business around the country. Uh, when you look at the preliminary list of things that are going to be in this first package, uh, the jobs and infrastructure bill, you know, $600 billion or more for infrastructure, $400 billion for care for the elderly, $300 billion for housing and infrastructure, and it goes on. How much of that is on the table with the leadership in the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi? How much is she willing to bargain with Republicans to get votes at the at the House level? Because what we saw in the last bill was straight line party vote, move it quick. Is there going to be a different approach to this bill? 
Maybe, but I think that what we have seen, I've been in the, in the Congress, I, this is my 12th uh, term now, um, and infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Um, we lost some of that during the um, Trump years, but um, I, I really think that it's not going to be that hard a, a sell. I think these uh, members understand what they need to bring home to their uh, to their communities. Um, I also just want to say Nancy Pelosi has proven herself to be the top negotiator. Um, that I think may have ever been seen from a Speaker of the House. Um, and she, and that means also convincing sometimes uh, somewhat reluctant re- uh, Democrats in a very narrow margin that we have right now. We've been able to pass major bills with almost every single uh, Democrat. So um, I think she's uh, looking forward to those, uh, to those negotiations. And as I said... I'm not so sure that at the end of the day we don't do uh, an infrastructure bill, um, both physical infrastructure and human infrastructure, which the president has talked about, um, through a reconciliation bill. But I hope not. I hope we'll be able to do this in a bipartisan way. Congresswoman, I want to switch gears here because, uh, wow, that big tech hearing the other day? Man, yeah. oh man. I mean, that was a... That was what we call a doozy. I mean, I, I, that was I mean, a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Folks, if you didn't see this hearing, Congresswoman Jance Schakowsky, Democrat, Illinois' ninth congressional district, one-on-one with Mark Zuckerberg. Whew. And uh, you said recently that you think big tech companies have literally, in some cases, gotten away with murder. What needs to change? All, all kidding aside, this is a serious issue. Go ahead. Well, let me just say that the, the murder, for example, the genocide of the Rohingya people mm. in Myanmar yep. um, was on Facebook. And really, they could not have coordinated um, what happened, that uh, the human disaster, the genocide, without, without Facebook. And, you know, so that's, that's one really extreme example but what did Mark Zuckerberg have to say a few years ago when he came about that? It was kind of like, oops, we're sorry, we made a mistake. Well, that's the kind of response for years now that we have been getting from big tech. Um, you know, we saw this election season, we saw advertising on, on Facebook. So this was a paid ad from the um, Trump, administ- Trump people, from the Trump campaign, uh, that said that uh, Joe Biden was uh, supported by the President Maduro of uh, Venezuela and that he was endorsed by, uh, by him. Well, that was just totally, completely made up. And so the question is, how far can these, um, uh, organ- these rich companies, and, you know, Zuckerberg's one of the richest people in the, in the world, and putting on their platforms misinformation, disinformation. We call the, the hearing the dis, disinformation nation, social uh, media, um, media's role in um, uh, it, it, disinformation, misinformation, and violence. And, you know, that's, that's, what, our, that's what we're seeing that is being um, nurtured on these, uh, these tech companies. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just Zuckerberg. 
Um, we had uh, Dorsey. Dor- uh, oh, yeah, the whole list. Pachai, Pachai um, yeah, from Google, which is also YouTube. And Jack, uh, Jack Dorsey, what a beard. And he's an interesting looking guy. Congresswoman. I gotta I gotta interrupt before it goes any further. Um Congresswoman, if I could follow up on uh the point you're making about these political campaign commercials on the web, especially Facebook, where Facebook has no policy, if well they do have a policy that they don't do fact checking of political ads. Now, I've run campaigns for you know the better part of forty five years. I did them when I was a child. And uh and 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 when you put broadcast advertising on, you, you, you have to put on factual ads or they will pull That's your right. ad. And so, exactly. so the, the loophole is not a small one. Donald Trump ran 22.5 million web ads wow. that were deemed false in the last election. So this is not a small problem. Would you be willing to uh, modify Section 230 or pull it completely if they don't come up with a way to put factual political advertising on their platforms? Well, the, we are definitely, um, for, for those who don't know, um, Section 230 um, is almost, some people call it a get-out-of-jail-free card. When, when the Internet was just getting going in 1996, there was the passes of the, the communications, what do we call it, um, act that um, pretty much did give them a green light to put anything up because we wanted to help that industry get going. But now people, um, the, even the, what is truth is no longer clear anymore because it's up on social media and people buy into it with the help of platforms themselves, of the companies themselves. Um, and, and so we, I told, what I said at the beginning in my opening statement is that the days of self-regulation are over. Mm. The American people, and this is bipartisan, yep. that, that people think there has to be some reigning in. We know that there was disinformation about um, the uh, vaccines. There's been disin- there was disinformation about the assault on the Capitol, that um, it's helping to promote violence. There's no question about it. All of them agreed that there there was a role that they played in in that, and and so there has to be some. Uh, they they have to be held accountable, and a yeah. number of pieces of legislation now that would do that coming out of my subcommittee. All right. Congresswoman Jen Schakowsky, Democrat from Illinois, 9th Congressional District. I got to ask, what kind of dog do you have? We heard it barking in the background. <laughs> no. My dogs, um, appropriately named for a Democrat, Eleanor and Franklin. Um, <laughs> are, yes, they are. And, and, and the thing that's great about them right, right now is that they have learned to howl like wolves. I've wow. helped in the lessons, the three of us. Um, are big howlers now. But, yeah, they're big dogs, and they're fabulous. That's awesome. Well, we all know that we, we greatly value pets, especially this year, our canine friends. Congresswoman Jen Schakowsky, Democrat from Illinois, 9th Congressional District, talking about all things, previewing that infrastructure uh, speech tomorrow in Pittsburgh, as well as Section 230. Rick, I mean, you hear it there again. I mean, this is a massive, massive uh, issue that these lawmakers are, are really tackling. But, I mean, you hit it on the head. I, I just I just think back to when whenever you watch a TV ad, you always hear, my name is 
so-and-so politician and I approve this message. Well, you don't see that on the, on the internet ads. I mean, there's literally nothing that you have to stamp in order to, to get it through the approval process. You're exactly right, Kevin. There's it's the Wild West, and yeah. and now it's like in a the bar days, fight run amok. Yeah, it, it didn't matter too much because there wasn't that much. Now this is where the bulk of the advertising happens, both commercial and political. All right, let's welcome to the program Mark Begich, who is a strategic consulting advisor at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, and of course, is the former Alaska senator. Uh, senator Begich, it's so great to have you on. I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, big tech regulations. I just wanted to, to, to you know, what, did you, what do you think, what direction is this all being headed into uh, with Republicans and Democrats now calling on there to be some more big tech regs? You know, it's always interesting when uh, the Senate has a 50-50, how suddenly both want to solve the problem. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just I'm just pointing out an obvious uh, situation. You know, no one has clear majority, and they're all trying to figure out how to solve this problem because they all paid a price for it, right? Because I was listening to the interview there you just had with the Congresswoman, and it's clear that people know there needs to be constraints on misinformation and blatant. You know, there's always an opinion that will be in an advertisement, especially political advertisement, but there's such a effort that we have seen over the last several years of misinformation uh, put into ads when they know they have, there's no recourse, and then the platforms can do whatever they want. And so I think you're going to see, you know, no one likes to hear the word more regulation, but sometimes you got to regulate in order to have a, you know, a level playing field. And I think that's where congressional people are. Plus, you know, maybe I'm a little uh, cynical, but, you know, they now realize how much money they have to raise to buy those ads and counter the negative ads. It's also an economic opportunity, meaning that, if they get a level playing field, maybe they don't have to spend as much uh, counter-punching on the negative stuff that's so outlandish. Maybe I'm too cynical. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Well, maybe I'm too young, Rick, but I mean, I don't understand why they can't just get a, get a bill through. I mean, I, I feel like I've been covering Republicans and Democrats talking and talking and talking right. about Section 230 for years now. I mean, they've been doing it in earnest recently, but... What's it going to take to actually get a policy change? They agree. Okay, we get it. There's a problem. What are you doing to fix it? So what, what's the timetable, Rick? Yeah, Kevin. I mean, you've seen a huge uh, change in the uh, environment around big tech in Congress, right? It, it was only a few years ago that these were, you know, ah, this is the future. Everything's going to be big tech. These guys are all geniuses. They're all the richest people in the world. You know, we just got to do whatever they're doing and do more of it. And, and the United States will prosper for as long as we live. And all of a sudden, privacy issues started coming up. You know, these issues around advertising and representation, you know, all these these battery of issues, it's not just Section 230, have hit the hill and it's hit Republicans and Democrats in the head alike. And as you said, um, 
when's it going to be enough? Well, I really think this election cycle, you need a scandal. You need a, a event. Haven't we had enough scandals? Rick, i got to interrupt you. Haven't <laughs> yeah. we had enough scandals? I mean, Well, you know, there's a scandal meter in Washington. If you're only at a five, it's like every I day, no problem. I survived the Trump years. You know? But, but by the time you get to a 10, which is, you know, uh, January 6th became a 10, right? And, uh, yeah. and, and that's enough to, to, to really create change. And, and believe me, uh, Section 230, you you repeal that, you're hitting them in their pocket because then they are responsible for what's on their site and they're going to have to spend billions in order to ensure that they don't have misinformation or disinformation on their sites. And, and look, I mean, and, and folks, listen, I mean, I get it. I think, you know, I, I do talk to folks who represent the, uh, the big tech companies and whatnot. And we should note, especially in this pandemic, small businesses in particular, we're utilizing those platforms in our country for good to keep their their businesses open uh, and to, to have that communication with the community. In many ways, they provided a lot of positive uh, elements and, and to facilitate communications for a host of different uh, industries. So, you know, I, I do think we have we, we owe it to balance out uh, that conversation as well. Coming up next, we continue with the all-star policy panel. Baggage is here with Rick Davis. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio, along with Rick Davis. He is the Bloomberg Politics contributor, as well as Mark Begich, former Alaska senator, a strategic consulting advisor at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Look, we've got a huge speech tomorrow, folks. It's not every day you get the President of the United States going to a city synonymous with grit, hard work, perseverance of, uh, of the steel industry of yesteryear, Pittsburgh. Look, I'm not even from there, but I mean that's truly what it represents. And and every source in, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is is signaling that this is going to be the roadmap. Call it the Biden Belt and Road Initiative, so to speak. The question is, can you get Republicans on board, and can you get the both parties aligned over the long term? Take a listen to the sound on this from Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, because uh, Buttigieg joined executives from Amtrak as well as a Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, at a Virginia Amtrak rail station to discuss not the infrastructure bill that's coming tomorrow, but the already allotted $43 billion that was part of the rescue plan. Here he is. Now, the rescue plan contains $1.7 billion for Amtrak to prevent, prepare for, and respond to COVID. These funds are providing much-needed assistance that will allow Amtrak to return more than 1,000 furloughed employees to work and maintain critical rail service to passengers across the country. Rick, I mean, I got to be honest here. They're, they're touting the success of the stimulus plan from a couple of weeks ago on the eve of asking for more money. Is that smart politics? Well, I don't think I would have picked Amtrak of all the things to, to walk out on today. I mean, uh, granted, wow. I'm a commuter from Washington to New York. I take it a lot. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> and, uh, and so I have my own attitudes about Amtrak service. But at the end of the day, this was one of the complaints with the American Rescue Plan was that it was sort of feeding the beast. It was doing things that really weren't critical to the needs of people who were combating covid 
you know, regular train service, I wouldn't say was in the top 10. And so uh, this w- this is what got the Biden in- in administration in a fix with Republicans on Capitol Hill. The last thing they wanted to do was spend more money on Amtrak and, and other rail services that are that are subsidized already by the government. And and so now, as you rightly point out, on the eve of pivoting over to a big trans or big infrastructure bill, um, it, do we really want to be doing a victory lap on Amtrak? And I, I think it's a bit of a mistake, but uh, it, it, you know, it's where the, the victory lap on the American Rescue Plan intersected into the rollout of the new infrastructure bill. Go ahead, Senator Begich. I know you've, you want to come in here. Yeah, I would say this. You know, first off, I, I you know, I'm from Alaska. We don't know what Amtrak is. Uh, you know, but, uh, My we, point we exactly. That, <laughs> yeah, we have a railroad that only works in Alaska. But uh, saying that, uh, you know, to a huge population base, Amtrak is an important piece. But put that aside. I think the bigger issue is, and I think you're, you know, is that the right message? Is that the right thing? They should have said, you know, that was a small clip out of a larger speech. But put that up the side here and just think about what's going to happen tomorrow. You see the market responding and people, there's pent up demand for all the work that needs to be done in this economy for our infrastructure. May they be programmatic things like the highway bill or the air traffic or the uh, air bill uh, or the water, water bill. All those things are important, but where else are they going to put money in non-traditional, what I call programmatic uh, formula programs, where I think there's going to be a huge demand. I, I think the idea of trying to figure out how you get Republicans aboard, there's one thing, you know, I knew in the Senate in, in my days as a mayor, uh, Republicans like one thing like I liked, and that is building stuff and infrastructure. And that's about jobs, it's about people working, it's good for the economy, and has a long, longer trickle effect. The question will be, will senators suddenly have amnesia and say, oh, my gosh, we can't spend this money, despite the fact they funded when they did the dock fix, unfunded, un, no money to support it. When they did the tax increase, no money to support it, or the tax uh, decrease, no money to support that. So, you know, this is the classic D.C. thing. Now, at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be a strong effort to get Republicans on board with the infrastructure, uh, because it is something that I know a lot of Republicans talk about. But the American people, if you look at the data on the bill that just passed, they didn't care if Republicans supported it or not. What they cared about was, are you giving me a check? Am I getting my shot? Am I going to be able to get my kids back into school? What this will do will be very simple. If they do it right, and I'm not saying they will yet, but if they do it right and they put this money in the projects that can get on the ground fairly quickly, the American people are just going to be happy that there's work, there's activity, and they will see it. And they will forget about the inside beltway fight of what's partisan, what's not, because the result will make the decision for them. I, I, I mean, look at the data. Forty-some percent of the Republicans in the population supported the bill that just passed and no Republicans supported. You know, I, 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 I don't want to knock Amtrak too much because I also take the Amtrak from uh, – D.C. to Philly whenever I go home or I get off at Biden Station if I can convince one of my one of my relatives to pick me up in Delaware. And uh, 
I got to say, the way they can keep the balance, especially those workers in the cafe cart, which has been closed because of the COVID, <laughs> it's a feat. And it's, they're like, it's, it's, it's a massive skill. I have no idea how they do it. I'm baffled, especially with the coffee, the way they juggle that. It's, it's really a tour de force. Take a listen to what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today, earlier today, previewing President Biden's speech set for tomorrow about the concerns on the infrastructure plan. Here's the sound on this from Psaki. Uh, making an investment in America, uh, not just modernizing our roads, our railways, our bridges, but building an infrastructure of the future. So some of it is certainly infrastructure shovel-ready projects. Some of it is how do we expand broadband access. Some of it is ensuring that we are uh, addressing uh, the needs in people's homes and communities. So there you go. I mean, a lot riding on that speech tomorrow, and we will cover it every angle. I can tell you there's been meetings here just about how we're going to cover it and Everything going on. So we're going to have every single angle covered. Coming up, we talk U.S.-China relations, plus the World Health Organization weighed in on Wuhan. Just exactly how did that virus emerge? I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. All right. We're here with the all-star policy panel, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Mark Begich, former Alaska senator, strategic consulting advisor at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Trek. They've tweaked the price tag down to two and a quarter trillion dollars for President Biden's price tag on that speech tomorrow that he is delivering on infrastructure. But we turn now to U.S.-China uh, relations because the World Health Organization's Peter Van Embarek said at a press conference that there wasn't any proof or evidence that the labs would have been involved in Wuhan in a leak or an accident as it relates to where COVID-19 uh, came from. Take a listen to what the World Health Organization had to say today. Looks like we don't. Nobody have. has been able to pick up any uh, any firm um, uh, arguments or proof or evidence uh, that uh, uh, these labs or any of these labs uh, would have been involved in a in a in a lab uh, leak uh, accident. Meanwhile, the United States signed a joint statement expressing shared concerns about the World Health Organization team's report on the possible origins of COVID-19. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said during her briefing today that she echoed the administration's concerns. She said that the White House has a team of experts studying the World Health Organization's report. Here she is. It lacks crucial data, information. It lacks access. It lacks transparency. It certainly, we don't believe that in our review to date that it meets the moment, it meets the impact that this pandemic has had on the global community. 
So, Rick, I mean, it's it's very remarkable to see how the World Health Organization uh, during the uh, fourth quarter of the campaign and the lead up to Election Day was a contentious political pinata, for lack of a better uh, phrase, where you had Democrats and and then candidate Biden uh, saying that there needed to be increased funding for the World Health Organization. And now you have a deeply skeptical uh, President Biden raising concerns about the narrative that the World Health Organization is putting out for the world to review. Yes, Kevin. I mean, the, the politics created a black and white situation where Biden had to be for rejoining the WHO and because Donald Trump had uh, pulled the U.S. out of it. And it didn't mean at the time that the WHO was either good or bad. It needed to have reforms, but doing it in the middle of a pandemic was a big topic. Uh, what's interesting about this report today is even though the press uh, uh, report from uh, the individual you identified uh, sounded as if they were ruling out uh, a lab-based leak of this uh, virus, the head of WHO uh, has basically said, look, we can't rule that out. He's come out and said, wait a minute, we just don't have any information about that. We weren't given access to raw data. We weren't given you know, transparency. And so we're going to we're going to continue to investigate that option because at the end of the day, uh, I think this is this is why uh, the Trump administration was so keen to distance itself from the WHO, because they just believed that they were going to they were going to whitewash the entire investigation into where this virus came from. I think we know less today than we knew a year ago when this thing started. Senator Begich, do you agree? Yeah, I do. I, I think because I, I mean we don't know as much uh, today as you know a, a year ago. We do know this uh, that you know we've had the battle. This or you know I got to give pharma a huge credit because they did something that a lot of people said they couldn't do and get as many vaccines out as quickly as possible. But to the China, U.S. and Alaska is kind of unique, right? We just had uh, the discussions here in Anchorage uh, a couple weeks ago. And this is just one of many items that I think the Biden administration is going to continue to kind of raise the flag on, maybe on this issue or trade or currency manipulation. You pick the issue. I think the Biden administration sees that China is one of those places where they can play tough, but also recognize there has to be some diplomatic activity. So this is just one of many issues. And I still agree on that. I don't think people know exactly what the main source was of the virus. The good news is we have vaccines produced in record time that if people would just take them, uh, we could actually curb this very quickly. The World Health Organization really stepped in it because so you've got this one scientist in this report that they come out with, uh, uh, you know, that the international community in the United States is lambasting and saying that it's just, you know, faulty data. Then you've got the director general, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, coming out and saying that even though the international team of scientists determined that a leak is the least likely hypothesis, it still requires further investigation. Rick Davis, I mean, if you're the World Health Organization, what is it? You've got a report out there that says one thing. You've got your director general saying another. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, at what point do they speak as as, as a unified organization? Well, first of all, Kevin, Kudos to you for being able to pronounce that name because that is not an easy thing to do on the air. I've got my job. You are all pro, Uh, and (laughs) uh, and but you're right. I mean, this is part of the problem with WHO. It's not fixed, right? I mean, we still have issues 
with you know them uh, not giving it straight from the chin. I mean, we we've seen the politicalization of these institutions throughout the United States, but we have to really remember that that's been going on on a global scale. And so where are we going to get proper information? I think that the Biden administration is doing a good job of trying to keep the fire to the feet of the WHO to ensure that before they make any uh, declarations about the origins of this virus, that they've done all the proper work. And I think, you know, the press secretary uh, today, uh, Biden press secretary, did a good job of pushing back in a very diplomatic way. But, you know, this is not the end of this story. And I think that what we're seeing is a little bit of the laundry being washed at the WHO as to how they actually get information out to the public. So Tedros went on to say that he expects future studies to involve quicker and better data sharing in some of his most pointed comments directed against China. This is, is this is you know, the facts have been laid out in terms of the uh, in terms of the dates in which China did not allow there to be World Health Organization scientists allowed into Wuhan, allowed into the lab in question. Uh, and I think it's a pretty neutral statement to say uh, that folks are wondering why the Communist Party of China didn't allow World Health Organization scientists to enter into China uh, in, instead of waiting until uh, when they did at the end of uh, calendar year 2019. Uh, then you've got the current Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, who earlier this week on CNN said that the U.S. has, quote, real concerns about the methodology and the process of the report, including, this is important, the Chinese government, quote, apparently helped to write it, end quote. So this is a not a partisan issue, is it, Senator Begich? I mean, this is the one of the areas where Republicans and Democrats agree about their questioning uh, of the World Health Organization and the Communist Party of China's relationship to the World Health Organization, right? Yeah, you know, you're right on. I mean, this is, you know, when you, it's rare to see bipartisan issues. This is clearly one. And, and it's kind of the MO for China, right? You know, if they do anything that brings up world review, less is better for them, right? They don't want people to know what they're doing. Even it doesn't matter what they're doing. They just don't want people to know what they're doing, maybe on this issue around uh, the, the virus or anything else. And it's because the more information you learn, uh, to some extent, you see the more repressive government it is and how they, you know, you said it, the answer was in your statement. It, why don't they do it? Chinese communist government. I mean, you just you answered your own question, and that is they need to control every bit of information, right, wrong, or indifferent, and uh, that's because how they control their people. And they're not Rick, what? Rick, this isn't like a reporter or a blogger getting a a call from a source and and having to issue a correction. What's at stake here? This is the global narrative, is it not? We talked about big tech earlier and misinformation, but this is a global narrative for for history in many ways. Yeah, it's a global narrative, uh, and uh, it's very important to the health and well-being of the entire uh, uh, globe. And so I think that when you see China at the heart of this, you know, they they are trying to manipulate the public opinion to not be the ones who are responsible for the virus. And regardless of what happens, uh, they're, they're going to be at the center of this controversy for a long time to come. Really, yep. such an important story. The World Health Organization, that report that came out, the interfighting, squabbling amongst officials at the World Health Organization and the United States response, again, joining that joint statement expressing shared concerns with other countries about the legitimacy uh, of that World Health Organization uh, report. Really important conversation. The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th 
A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.